The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. This morning, we're in the second of a six-part series regarding soul cravings and what, what we really desire, what we absolutely have to crave at times. And if you were here last week, we, we talked about some of those cravings, and, and we, we summed it up by saying that that in, in the end, if you don't have those cravings met, you will get them met somehow. And we saw some of maybe the unhealthy, weird ways that folks um, process what they crave. And, and in this series, we'll, we'll touch on three of them. We'll touch on intimacy, we'll touch on meaning, and we'll touch on destiny. But uh, intimacy is, is one of those... Um, uh, we, we talked about this on Thursday night at the small group that we had. Uh, intimacy is one of those words that depending on where you are, it has uh, either a, a, a negative or a positive sort of thing. So like, I'm, I'm, I'll give you an example. By a show of hands, how many of you are creeped out by the word moist? Yeah. Yeah. And no, keep them up because there's people here to help you. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you describe cake? Semi-hydrated, you know, uh, lubricated. Yeah, lubrication is another word, right? See, it, it, it's just one of those words. Like, I, I know they trigger weirdness in our head, and and um, <laughs> lubricant, you know, and or, or moist. And it's, stop, you know, please. I came to church to feel better, not creeped out. Too bad you came here. So, uh, and and uh, intimacy is that way for some people. Um, that word alone is, you know, somebody too close to whatever. And others of us are, are totally fine with intimacy, well-adjusted adults like myself. And, um, but it reminds me that, that we are uh, people who, who fear and are confused by the craving of intimacy in our life. In fact, I'll give you an example. Most, uh, most of us love films like love films, Right? How many of you, what's, you could just shout it out. This will be a dialogue here. What is your favorite, like, love story film? Princess Bride. Princess Bride. Well done. That's right. <laughs> what's the tagline there? Something, as I said it, as you wish. That's right. Which means I love you. Yeah. Uh, another one. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what's that? Someone say Terminator back there? No, oh, the notebook, yeah. Yeah. Death is love. That's, uh... Well, that's kind of like Romeo and Juliet, right? Skinny, skinny, skinny little... What's his name? The, from the Basketball Diaries? Leonardo. No, what's his name? Oh, whatever, I can't hear you. Uh, so the, 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 the guy in, in Romeo and Juliet and Claire Dane. You don't have to shout. I'm right here. <laughs> See, I'm getting to that point in my life where I'm getting to be that old guy where people are talking to me. I, pardon me? You know, I, I do that a lot. So, what's that? Yeah, that was a great film. Good, good film. Uh, 37, the story of a brother, 13 brothers, who um, had a younger brother named Joseph. And, um, you know, if you're in a, a family, how many of you know, how many of you are single children here? Anybody single children? Not one? Okay. Then you know that in a family, your parents always say, 
I love you all the same. And this is where we first start to lie to you guys, you know, that, that, because, because, you know, there's, there is favorites, right? And I, I don't want to know if it's favorites as much as we click with one of the kids more than the others, right? It, it, we get along, we understand, they're, they have more of our DNA, you know, they're, they're more like us, and we click, and others, we're, we're, we love them, but we're just trying to understand them, they're, they're more like our spouses, and, and so there's this, you know, weird dynamic that goes on. And, and in my household, whenever my mom was mad at my dad, she was mad at me and, and vice versa. My dad and I are almost identical, not, not only in physically, but the way that we, we operated and the way our temperament is, our proclivities are. But in this particular family, it was so obvious that, that Jacob loved Joseph more that the dark side of that was that it came up in jealousy. And, and, and that's a painful thing to know. And some of you maybe perhaps were in a family that it was, it, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even hidden. They didn't make the attempt. It was obvious that you were, um, you weren't liked. And so for these other men, it, it got to be so bad that they contemplated even killing their brother. And, and in the end, they decided, well, you know, we don't want to kill him. Here's our brother. So let's just sell him into slavery instead. You know, we'll, he'll live that living death. And then they lied to their father and brought his uh, special coat with blood on it to say, oh, we think someone killed him. And, and I, I often, you know, I, I've had to be that person to give a death notification to people sometimes. And I, I wonder, how did they stand there and see their father break down and weep over the loss of a son? And how did they sleep that night? How did they eat the next morning? I mean, how, how did that happen? And yet it did. And so that's one of the dark sides of intimacy where we... We just want what the others have. And in this case, the, the tragedy was is that these men so wanted their father's love that they destroyed the other who had it. Another way that, that intimacy goes strange is when we confuse love with lust. This is one of those stories you don't often hear on Sunday mornings because it involves rape. But it's in our scriptures. And... Uh, it's between a brother and a half-sister. And in Second um, Samuel chapter 13, a fellow named Ammon, who loves his sister Tamar. In fact, we can, let's go to that story. Second Samuel chapter 13. Second Samuel 13. It says, In the course of time, Ammon, the son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, the son of David. So Ammon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. So he, you know, loved her or wanted her very badly. She was apparently very beautiful. And so Ammon had a friend named Jonadab, the son of this fellow, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he asked Ammon, Hey, uh, you're the king's son, so why do you look so haggard after... You know, morning after morning, and, and won't you tell me? And, and then Ammon says, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, I want you to hear what he said here. The reason why I'm so tore up is because I'm in love with her. All right? This is, this is how he understands what he's feeling. I love her. Uh, I got an idea. Why don't you go to bed and pretend to be ill? And when your father comes to see you, say to him, I, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Ammon lay down and pretended to be ill. 
And when the king came to see him, Ammon said to him, Hey, I, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Go to the house of your brother Ammon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Ammon, who was lying down, and she took some dough and kneaded it and made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served the, him with the bread, and, but he refused to eat it. Now here's where it's going to get this strange. So Ammon s- sends everyone out of here. Send everyone out. And so all the servants, everybody clears the room. So everyone left him. And then Ammon said to Tamar, Bring the food into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. I, you know, I, I got to wonder at this point of the story, knowing the ending, I wonder if Tamar was a little bit uncomfortable at this point. Or if she just thought, well, this is my, you know, my, my sick brother, my this poor guy. Let me, let me go to the bedroom and where he wants me to feed him. I'll feed him there. That's fine. And Tamar took the bread she prepared for him and brought it to her brother Ammon, Ammon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What, what about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You, you would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Uh, you know, and you have to picture this girl pushing back and you know, t- trying to get away and, and, and speaking, trying to speak sense into the situation, into a, a situation that makes no sense at all. This act of violence that's about to happen. Please speak to the king, and he will not keep me from being married to you. But, but he refused to listen. Since he was stronger than her, he raped her. Now, notice verse 15. This is critical. Then Ammon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Ammon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, Some, sending me away would, would be a, a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. And he called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. And so the servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And she was wearing a richly ornamented robe. For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. She put ashes on her head. And tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. And she put her hand to her head and went away weeping as, out loud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Ammon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Taman lived in her uh, brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. But when King David heard about this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Ammon, neither good or bad, but he hated Ammon for what he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. Uh, This is right up there with any of those weird soapbox dramas. I mean, you know, this is just, this is dysfunction, right? Dad finds out, doesn't take any action. Absalom appears to kind of want to, you know, hey, don't don't make a big deal about this thing. But I want to tell you, Absalom from that moment on was plotting to kill his brother, and he does. And, and, and I think some of us have been in those situations where we, we, we so want somebody. We, 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 we think what we're experiencing is, is deep, authentic love, this emotions and the way our bodies even crave another person. But the reality is, is that after that moment's over, that there seems to be such distance 
It's, it's strange. I've actually had folks tell me that they have had an easier time having sex with somebody than a conversation with them afterwards. It's um, this sort of lust, this one of the dark sides of intimacy, has to take what others have. It takes the other completely without any consideration for the other. This is not giving. This is consuming. And you have to understand that, that love is one of those kind of things you can never take. You can really only give it. Listen, I, I'm going I'm to tell you that if you're not leaving the person better because of your relationship, you're not loving them. Period. Period. There's just no other way to describe it. You may say you care for this person. You may say you, you really want to be with this person. And I, uh, you know, we click, we get along. But, but if you're not leaving them better, you really don't love them. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a level of consumption. There's a level of lust that's occurring here. Now, maybe you're, you know, you're not getting naked and all that. Okay, fine. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that, that this person is only in relationship with you as long as they have something to give to you that you can take from them. And that's just one of the dark sides of intimacy. And I can tell you, more often than not, if you look back, and there's one way to measure this, if you're able to still have a healthy friendship with people that you were once you know, dating or close to, if you're still able to maintain that friendship, that you probably had a healthy, fairly healthy relationship. It's not always that way, but it's pretty much universally that way. But if it's one of those people that you see them like, oh, man, you know, I, you, you go into that club, you go into that restaurant, you go to that place, and there they are. It's like, uh, let's go. You didn't have a good one. And so after jealousy, which wants what the others have, one of the other dark sides of intimacy is, is lost in wanting to take others. I think there's just this, this narcissistic sense that everyone else is meant to satisfy my needs physically, emotionally, at every level. And that is, that is never the basis of a solid relationship. It might be for a short time. You know, you're here to meet my needs. You, you give to me, you, take, you, uh, you care for me, and, and so we're in relationship. But I, I have to tell you, that's not a relationship. That's just simply just robbery. It's just simply consuming. The funny thing is about actually loving and caring for somebody is that the more you're giving to that person, the more you're loving them that, and, 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 and caring for them, that it actually enlarges you and, and it doesn't diminish you. You're never diminished by love that you give out. But you are diminished by the love that you try to take. You are less of a human being. And, and, the, and, and, the, and when it's a consistent pattern of your relationships, you have reduced your capacity to actually even give love back. If that, was, um, if that was all, that would be bad enough, but there's another side, another dark side to uh, intimacy. That's, that's bitterness, uh, that we wish to destroy the others who do have. Um, I mentioned this on Thursday night, that um, our scriptures tell us that part of being in a community where we're all connected to each other is that we're able to weep, excuse me, we're able to, to rejoice when people have good news and they're happy. And we're able to weep with them when they have sad news. And I, I always thought that the weeping thing was easy. You know, when you see a human being in distress, you know, if you're just a normal human being, you, you know, and you see someone suffer a loss, well, uh, of course you, you have compassion on them. But when somebody else's life is moving forward and career-wise and success and, and financially doing better and, and or relationally doing better, you know, if, um, if you're the guy that really dug this one girl 
and your best friend and her connected and they're in relationship, you go, dude, you know what? I just went out with her and we, and we have so much in common. I, I, you know, we, we're, we're going to go out this, this weekend. Isn't that great? You're like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're like dying inside. Same thing with girls, right? You really had this thing for the guy, you know, and, and, and you thought you guys, that there was magic. You thought you were clicking and you were living the love story and, you know, you were, you were, you, were uh, you know, Meg Ryan. He was Tom Hanks. It was in one of the other movies, uh, you know, The Volcano, The Sleepless in Seattle. You got mail. You were going to be those people. And, and, and uh, no, he just thought that you were a great person and he was actually interested in your friend and they're going out now. And, and then they want to tell you about how great, how great they are. And you're like, oh, I am so happy for you. And I'm such a liar right now. And, and, you know, it's harder to be happy for people when they have good news that you don't have. And sometimes we are so dysfunctionally broken and damaged that, that we're actually bitter when people are doing well. And we want to uh, actually get stranger, destroy what others have. And in Genesis chapter 4, we can turn there also. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Take you through a little story that's familiar, Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Adam lay with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, oh man, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, and the Lord looked with favor on Abel and and his offering. But with Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face showed it. I want to point out something here, because this is something about the scriptures that I find interesting. There's just almost a, a, a banality to the story. Between verses 2 and 3, how many years think passed? There was a point, there was a time when Cain was the only child. And then Abel came on the scene, and he's not so cute anymore, and everyone's not hanging on his word. Are you, how many of you are the last child born in your family? Are you really? Okay. Have you noticed the photo albums? You're barely mentioned. The firstborn, there's like every day there's a new photo. You know, right? And, and that's just one day one. You know, and then, and then in the age of digital cameras, they record every move, their first poop, their first little bath or whatever. And then when, when you came along, you're the third or fourth child. There's just, you know, your kindergarten photo and graduation, and that's it, you know. <laughs> we did that. <laughs> we had our firstborn. It was, we were photographing everything we could, you know. And by the time my daughter was born, it's not that we didn't care. It's just that, you know, like, ah, oh, yeah. We've seen that before. Click, you know. (laughs) I mean, you can almost kind of see maybe what some of the dynamics are going on. Now they're grown men and they're living their lives and and, and they begin to take two different departures. And I don't know what it was. But somewhere along the line, I have to understand to you that God had somehow communicated to these people, this is how you connect with me. It's not, I'm not looking for a salad. I want you to understand that in every great world religion, there was always a sacrifice meant for you to connect with your God. And in this particular great faith, there isn't anything different except that the God that connects to us becomes a sacrifice. A huge difference. That is not in any other story. 
And so God is driving home this, this, this lesson into humanity's collective memory over and over again, almost preparing the, them and setting the, the, the stage for, for his appearance in the form of Jesus. And so God notices that Cain is not quite right. And he says to him in verse 6, why are you angry? See, here's the question. You have to understand the context. I've told you how to connect with me. And now you're angry? Because, see, even if you're the kind of person that says, I don't know if I buy this yet. Okay, but just play with me. Say this is the story. If there's a God who exists and says, here, here's what I wish to connect with you. Here's what you, you could do and so that we can, we can have relationship. And then someone, one of your creatures does it completely different. And so the, the, the lunacy is that you're angry? Shouldn't I be angry? Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, evil is, is crouching right at your door. It desires to have you, and you must master it. Cain, I want you to understand that you cannot live in an open rebellion and expect for us to have a relationship and for this not to have an effect on your soul. You cannot avoid the fact that there's certain habits and behaviors and characteristics that have a deteriorating or a healthy effect on your soul. And Cain, I, I'm warning you, because I care for you, that if you continue this way, there's, a, there's an actual evil right next to you that is waiting to consume you. You, you, you have to make the decision to, to connect correctly, Cain. Now, the next verse. Now, I don't know, was it the next day, uh, you know, the, a few moments later? Was the conversation in his head like it is for most of us when we're having those soul-to-soul moments with God? He, he hears this. God is... This is what's funny to me about this. See, if, see, if I was God, the story would have ended right here with the salad. I want your crazy salad. Get your salad out of here. Didn't I tell you how to go do this? And you know, you, you think, you know, you pick somebody up and you flick them. No, maybe? Okay, so it's just me who's violent. Uh, so, and, and, and instead, here's how I wish to connect with you. Please don't do this. You're headed to an unhealthy path. You're, you're going on a direction that's not good. And, and he hears this, and he tells his brother, hey, let's go out to the field, something I want to show you, and he kills his brother. Then God still comes to him and says, what have you done? Where's your brother? And then there's that famous line, am I my brother's keeper? And of course, Jesus tells us as his followers that the answer to that question is yes, we are. And, and, and he tells Cain in, in this poetic, maybe mystical, but maybe true language. You know, his, his blood is actually crying out to me. And here's what's going to happen, Cain. You are never, ever going to experience human connection again. You are cut off from family, from community friendship, from warmth, from companionship. You're going to wander forever. And what does Cain say? Oh, this is too much for me to bear. You just killed your brother. 
I'm surprised God didn't say, I'm so done with you. And this is, you're you're going to be my example. And so then Cain says, but, but oh, this, this is way too much. If anybody finds me, they're going to kill me. And so God then out of kindness marks him. Okay, I'm going to protect you. And he marks him so that he's not murdered. Now, what I find interesting is that his, Cain's first reaction in thinking about other people is that they will kill him. Now, here's a litmus test for you folks. If you assume people are generally dishonest, there's something dishonest about you. If you assume that, that most men tend to struggle with lust and, and, and other thoughts, it's because maybe at some level you do as well. If you assume that people are generally are, are not trustworthy or they might steal, or, or it's because you know that in your own life. We, we, we just view people through the filter of our own souls. That's just how it is. And if you assume most people are likable, they're going to like you, probably because you like, you like people. I'm surprised when someone doesn't like me. There's so much to like. You know, if you don't like, if you don't like this mood, just hang in there five minutes. It'll be a different one coming. Why is my voice so high? At any rate, the... <laughs> but what you assume of other people's lives is a great indication of where you are as a person. See, here's one of those moments where you have to kind of, you know... Almost like AA meetings, you do that moral inventory. Are, are, are you? I mean, be honest. I mean, this is not raise your hands. This is not, you know, yeah, that's me, man. You know. But are you, are you one of those people that operate in the dark side of intimacy? Are you one of those people that are sort of jealous? You're, you're bitter? You have a consuming sort of great relational component with people? I can't answer those questions for you. This is something only you can really ask yourself. But I'll tell you how you can, you can measure this. Just take a look back at your relationships, your parents, your cousins, your peers in school, your boyfriends, your girlfriends. Is there damage back there? Is there just you know, a, a wreckage, mostly wreckage? If you're able to have a friendly, you know, uncomfortable conversation with people that you once dated and were close to, you probably had a pretty healthy relationship. But if you're not able to do that with any of your exes, you're damaged. I don't want to put it any other way. Now you can say, oh, so-and-so did this, and she did that, and but he was this, and blah, blah, blah. I get that. Okay, we, listen, we're, we're, we're all screwy. We all have problems. We're all hypocrites in transition. I get that. But if that's most of your story is broken relationships, the only consistent theme in that is you. And if you are a person that calls yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if this is your fifth church this year that you're visiting, it's you. It's not the pastor, not this guy. Um, it's you. It's, it's not, they, they, didn't, they weren't there for me. They didn't, they didn't feed me. Really? How old are you? They didn't understand me. They hurt me. One of the most 
healthy, useful skills you'll develop in any relationship is the art and the gift of forgiveness. I can't tell you how many times, I, I think maybe my responsibilities here or just life in general, how many times people, um, by the way, is it gossiping when you text it or is it just information? Right? Because gossiping seems to imply conversation. So if you text it, you know. And, and then we do, the, we do the Christianized spiritual gossiping, right? We leave the name out. But we describe everything about the person. But when you're consistently telling people what happened, how someone wronged you, you're at fault. First. Because if you have spoken to God about this, and you still have the need to tell somebody else, okay, fine. But I understand that that in the end, part of healing you and part of healing what's been broken is that one of you has to forgive. And if that other party has said they're sorry, you have the responsibility as a follower of Christ to forgive. That's just how it is. And it's interesting, in in broken relationships, you know, that... that, uh, Jesus puts the responsibility on both parties. If you know somebody has something against you, go make it right. And he also tells them in this section, if you're at the altar and you're connecting with God and you realize that you've done something wrong, go make it right. Because one of you has to go make it right. Marriages, friendships, communities like this. Listen, forget if you come here after a while... And you think, oh, this is a great little church. I really like it, da-da-da-da. And you think nothing's going to go wrong. You're delusional. It won't be with me because, you know, I'm pretty, pretty together. But uh, most of you are screwed up. And I understand, uh, you know. But you really, you are delusional. And you have given us a standard that's impossible for mortal, for mortal people. We will let you down. We will disappoint. We'll say the wrong thing. We'll try to be funny and it comes off wrong. So, in considering intimacy, then I guess the question to ask is, oh, geez, why would you want to? But, I mean, who, who are you as a person? It's funny how choices that we make can create such distance from the people that we love the most, isn't it? Um, I think you never really sense this so intently or intently intensely as as when you're married you, you can you can be three inches from somebody in bed and and you are worlds apart because of choices you made words that you said actions that you took and and the funny thing is is that there was a moment when you thought i could never live without this person i when i have officiated weddings you know it's it's such a happy day, and I, it's so much fun. These two young people, and they, they want to get married, and they can't even imagine ever being apart anymore. I mean, they, life could never be good unless this person's attached to me, and we're in love with each other. And I, you know, I, I get that. I, I'm married, and I enjoy it. And 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 yet, I know, I know, the day's coming where they're, they're not going to be able to stand each other's presence, and and, and it'll, it'll be painful to talk to the other person. And there were moments. There were moments that were so difficult with my, with my own wife and I that we, we had to write letters 
because we wanted to connect. But we, we, we just couldn't even talk. So here's the question. Are you a safe person to be around? Are you a person that perhaps someone could define your life that you tend to be a consuming, lustful type of person? Or a, a bitter person? Or a jealous person? You operating somewhere in the dark side of intimacy where you think the problem is out there. You know, you got to find that one that you can suck dry. <laughs> because the reality is, is that really it starts someplace deeper with you. And it's so confusing to, to crave intimacy and see it go wrong over and over and over and over and over again. And then there's moments that people have been betrayed. And um, it's horrible. It's very hurtful. I want to take you to a passage of, of, of a great betrayal. Let's go to Luke chapter 22 for a moment. Luke 22, verse 39. This is the last night that Jesus is on earth. And uh, he's, um, he's had a very powerful few hours with his students, with his disciples. And he's just a few hours away from his execution that he's aware of. Verse 39, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed. On reaching the place, he said to them, I want you guys to pray so you don't fall into temptation. So he withdrew from them about a stone's throw beyond them and he knelt down and prayed. And so now here was, here's what Jesus says. Father, uh, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and, and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he went back to his disciples, and he found them asleep. Why were they asleep? Because they were exhausted with sorrow. I think some of you have known that, you know, you, you are, usually it's a relationship. It goes so bad that, that you just, you're just, you're tired from the weeping, you're tired from the grief, and you just, you're just done, you're spent, and you crash. And there was something about the way Jesus looked that night, perhaps for them, that, that, that they were drawn into the sorrow of the moment. And it continues. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and, and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. And while he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was, was leading them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus asked him, Judas, are, are, you, really, are you really going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and, and healed him. Then, the, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders, listen, who had come for him, I, I, am I leading a rebellion? That you come with me with swords and clubs and, 
every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But, you know, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Verse 54. Then Jesus, then seizing him, they, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. And Peter had followed from a distance. Now, I, I want to tell you something. If you're familiar with the stories, that if Jesus had a best friend, it was Peter. I mean, if he had somebody he connected with on a regular basis in a way that we do with some guys, you just, you just sort of click with, you know, it was him. Over and over again, from being in his home, healing his mother-in-law, dealing with business, who he... He shared some important moments and insights. Definitely, it had to be Peter. John was, there was something different about John as well, but, but Peter, they had a unique relationship. And, and even when Jesus announces, hey man, I, I'm telling you, you guys are going to deny me. You're going to pretend you didn't even know me. Peter stands up and says, man, you're, I, you're my friend. I could never do that to you. And so... Verse 55, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them and a servant girl seated with her in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, hey, I think this guy was with him. But Peter denied it. I, I, <laughs> I don't know him. And then a little later, someone else saw him and said, hey, you're also one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, hey, certainly this fellow was with him. He's, he's a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word that had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and whipped bitterly. Now, here's the thing I find remarkable about the story. The first thing is that who knows this besides Peter? So somewhere along the line, Peter was willing to admit this to the author. The second thing is Jesus goes on from that moment to be um, beaten up and humiliated and tortured and finally executed. And he's got to suffer the emotional violence of being disowned and denied by a friend. I, I think if, if there's anything that made the anguish worse was knowing that even the people he, he had poured his life out were gone. There wasn't any emotional support, you might say. Now, he raises from the dead three days later. And one of the phrases that repeats itself over and over again is, I've come in peace. Because i got to tell you <laughs> that if somebody left me hanging like this <laughs> and I came back from the dead, <laughs> I don't know how I'd be coming in peace. Oh, I'd be coming. <laughs> oh, I so got your number. But I don't know if it would be coming in peace. Jesus was telling his followers, as he tells us, you have demeaned me, you have denied me, you have run away from me, but I want you to know that I love you. It is that kind of love 
that he calls us to as human beings. It is this kind of love that he calls us to and says to reach your full humanity, you're going to have to connect with me first so that you can connect with others correctly. So Jesus reaches out to you and to me, but then he asks us to reach out to each other. You see, in any kind of community like this, any other, in the churches that are going on around the world and even in this city, look, if you have something, and be honest, I mean, if someone has bugged you or hurt you or you feel insulted you, you know, the, the, the sarcastic part of me wants to say, go to Home Depot, buy some wood, get some tools, build a bridge and get over it, you know? The pastoral side of me says, I understand your pain, you know? But we're called to something different. We're called to forgiveness. And if you feel the need to text about it or talk about it, honestly, talk to God first. Because if you've told him, I can't forgive that person. I have to... I, I'm, I'm trying to put this in, in comparison Here's the model and the standard I've given all of you. And if you will connect with me in a relationship through my son Jesus, I'm telling you that you can also forgive the wrongs that happen here. Because every relationship I've seen break down, whether it's friendships, whether it's romance, and whether it's marriages, that every single time somebody stopped forgiving Somebody said, I can't. And somewhere in the I can't is an I won't forgive. Intimacy does have a dark side. I, I, because, because we're just broken and we're, we're dark sometimes and it's weird. I, I get that. You know, I have kids, I have family, I have a wife, you know, they have to live with me, I have to live with them. And, and, and it's, it, you know, when it's, when it's clicking, it's wonderful. But it's not always clicking. Life happens. But if you're able to forgive the other, you will maintain and keep those relationships that, are, that God values. And part of what you sign up for, if you commit to following Jesus Christ, is that I will be a person who will model that behavior. I may not always do it well, but that's the standard I'm shooting for. So, now... We're going to close with this. Who are you? Are you a safe person? Or are you the kind of person that is consumed or generally you can define your life by lust, by bitterness, by jealousies? And, and, and if you are that person, you, you don't have to be. Because Jesus comes to you also and says, you have denied me. You have demeaned me. But I love you. And I'm inviting you to a sacred romance. Let's close in prayer for a moment. Huh? Father, thank you so much for the forgiveness that you bathe us with on a regular basis. And I pray for these folks. Some of them are, are processing, as I've been with these past few days and weeks, uh, taking that inventory of ourselves and our relationships and am I a good person to be related to am I a good person a healthy person to be in relationship with 
And so what I pray is that as we finish today and the week that you would remind us of these themes and help us be a forgiving person, a giving person, a loving person who models the love that you've shown us. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.